This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. there. Hello. It's Thursday, October the 26th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Trying a new cadence on a Thursday. I'm like a tiger in a cage. I occasionally need to give myself enrichment. Coming up on the show today, physician Peter Atia has a new book that explores the idea of prolonging life. Dawn Dickinson tells you all about it in her preview of McLean's magazine. And Twitter, or X, is testing out subscription plans in a couple of countries. Ultimately, what's the prospect of Twitter becoming a profitable business? By the way, I'll also get into the notion of whether I want to call it Twitter or X until Elon Musk is willing to acknowledge other people changing their pronouns. I'm not going to acknowledge his desire to change the pronoun of Twitter. And by the way, Marco Flalo is going to be contemplating subscription plans on Twitter. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Can you tell I'm full of beans today? Mostly coffee beans. The show begins with the top story of the day, and this one has to do with your money, specifically retirement. Federal Finance Minister Krisha Freeland has agreed to a meeting with the provincial and territorial finance ministers to discuss Alberta's plan to withdraw from the Canada Pension Plan. Freeland still believes a national pension plan is the right answer. It is absolutely my conviction and the federal government's conviction that the CPP works really, really well for all Canadians, for all Albertans. And I am looking forward to the opportunity to discuss that further with the finance ministers of all the provinces and territories in the days to come. Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethenfalvy is the one who called for the meeting. Our government firmly supports the Canada Pension Plan, and we believe Alberta's proposal could cause serious harm over the long term to working people and retirees in Ontario and across Canada. And I believe my federal and provincial counterparts would agree with this. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith feels there's plenty to to discuss with finance ministers. The pension contributions are just one aspect of how federal programs consistently disadvantage Alberta. Alberta is always paying more and always receiving less in benefits. The Alberta government commissioned a report that said the province would be entitled to leave CPP with about $334 billion. That's uh, about half the total assets of the CPP. Here's an update from a big news story from yesterday. The Bank of Canada is holding its key interest rate steady at 5%. You already knew that, but I wanted to play a few clips from Bank of Governor, Bank of Canada Governor. I'm putting words together this morning. Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem on the central bank's rationale for holding rates. We held our policy rate steady today because monetary policy is working to cool the economy and relieve price pressures, and we wanted to give it time to do its job. But further easing in inflation is likely to be slow, and inflationary risks have increased. Macklin reflected a bit more on the broader economic picture. 
Today's decision also reflected our best efforts to balance the risks of over and under tightening. We don't want to cool the economy more than necessary, but we don't want Canadians to have to continue to live with an elevated inflation either. So what does this rate freeze mean in practical terms? I picked a major Canadian bank at random this morning, just looking at mortgage rates. And I apologize, there's about to be some math. We'll do it together. Maybe have one or two sips of your coffee just to get that brain percolating and stimulating as I toss some numbers at you here in regards to mortgage rates. But I promise you, it's going to lead to a conclusion. Just stick with me. Maybe pull out your pen and paper and do the calculations alongside with me. A five-year variable rate mortgage, that's an adjustable rate mortgage at Scotiabank, today, if you were to open it up, is 7.65%. 7.65%. A five-year fixed rate mortgage at Scotiabank is 7.04%. So you would lock in at that number over the course of five years. In the winter of 2021, jumping into the time machine here, you were looking at variable rates around 1%, fixed rates around 2%. Sorry, a bit more math for you. I know, I apologize, it's hard, but I really wanna put this in a practical terminology for you. Let's say you took out a $300,000 mortgage at 2% interest. You're paying about $6,000 a year in interest. At 7%, that's $21,000 a year. So imagine someone who got that rate, maybe the 1% rate, in February of 2021, and now they're sitting at 7.5%. They were talking about paying $3,000 a year, and now they're doing over $21,000 a year, just an in interest, not actually paying down the mortgage, just for the right to have that loan and have that mortgage, $21,000 a year. And to be really frank about this, the number $300,000 on a mortgage is probably a lot lower than the Canadian average if you consider what houses cost in places like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Halifax, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, etc. Anyway, I don't mean to be down and dour this morning, but I did want to pass along practical numbers. People can talk about percentages all they want, but what does it mean for you? Let's shift over to a different story. A federal report says medically assisted deaths jumped 31% last year. Lisa Laporte has the story. Health Canada says more than 13,000 people chose medical assistance in dying or made in 2022 and that the average annual growth was 31% from 2019 to 2022. The fourth annual report comes before MAID is expected to expand next spring to include people with a mental disorder as their sole underlying condition. The report says 63% of people who received MAID last year had cancer while 19% had heart conditions. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. Another federal story for you, India's High Commissioner in Canada says some visa applications will begin being processed again. Dylan Robertson has the story. The decision comes a month after New Delhi suspended visa services in Canada and for Canadian citizens worldwide. Starting on Thursday, Indian missions in Ottawa and at consulates in Toronto and Vancouver will start issuing business, medical and conference visas. India will also issue visas for people with family ties in India but did not include information about other types of visas such as those for tourists. Dylan Robertson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. 
And hey, how about a quasi good story? I've been sharing the ups and downs of the United States House of Representatives and their quest to find a Speaker of the House. Well, they finally did. Liz Landers has the update. After three weeks without a Speaker of the House, a little-known Republican Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson was elected to the top position. Johnson taking the dais as the Speaker for the first time. We stand at a very dangerous time. I'm stating the obvious. We all know that. The world is in turmoil. But a strong America is good for the entire world. Johnson becomes the 56th Speaker of the House. Every Republican president voted for him. Democrats have criticized Johnson, a close ally of former President Trump, for voting against certification of the 2020 election. Liz Landers, ABC News, Washington. Okie dokie, that's your look at the news. Let's take a breath with the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find the show on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find the show on Facebook. On Wednesday, you did an awesome job job responding to this question. What is your biggest pet peeve as a pedestrian? 18% of you said sidewalk clutter. Big surprise here. 0% of you said bike lanes. 12% of you said large groups of people. But 70% of you clicked the other button. But you didn't just click the other button. You got engaged. You started commenting. So, a lot of responses here on Facebook. Tanika says, sidewalk clutter. As a wheelchair user, some sidewalks are narrow enough without community bikes locked to signs or garbage cans blocking. Tammy comments in, other cracks, holes, crosswalks that don't beep, so I'm standing there for more than one cycle. Crowded crosswalks. Kraft and Deborah writes in, drivers that try to nudge you faster across, even though they can see you're a disabled senior with a walker. Streetlights that change too fast for normal people to get across, let alone people who are disabled. Bad sidewalks with super high curbs that make it hard to get off the curb before the light changes. The sentiment that Deborah shared in regard to being honked at was echoed by a few more audience members and a bunch of other Facebook users wrote in. So I'm gonna run this down for you. Snowbanks and snow removal, sidewalk closures, potholes, curb cuts, bumpy sidewalks and cracks, thoughtless drivers, poorly managed construction sites. Fantastic job by you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex, jumping into that conversation on social media. Let's see if you'll do that again today at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And the question, a little bit meta, looking inwardly at social media, how relevant is social media in your day-to-day -day life? Very, somewhat, a little, or not at all? Elizabeth Moeller, this kind of circles around the topic that you brought to the roundtable yesterday in regard to the lawsuit being brought against Meta, in regards to some of their business practices that target children and young people, and uh, is being argued that can lead to a bit of a social media addiction. But this spins off into a different direction, which is not how you use social media or how dangerous as social media, but how relevant is social media in your day-to-day -day life? Because, Elizabeth, I find it to be increasingly more irrelevant. Yeah, I would agree. I think that, for me, the relevance comes to the type of work I'm doing. So, as a PhD student, I'm a part of, like, a PhD group for people who are blind or visually impaired, and that's really relevant because 
often we share tips and tricks on accessing information or how to navigate in accessible spaces. But I find that I'm less likely to want to engage in the chatter of social media. And I'm also finding that there's so many ads that I just mm -hmm. I don't feel that they're relevant to me. <laughs> um, and I think I also feel like the relevancy really comes from specific uses. So I do a lot of activism online, but other than that very specific piece, I don't find it relevant to my day-to-day -day life. What? So I would say maybe somewhat or a little, it's hard to, it's hard to delineate somewhat from a little, so I'll maybe stick in the somewhat. <laughs> yeah. I, I know when I'm putting options like this, there can be a little bit of crossover and redundancy. Laura Bain, I think Elizabeth touched on something that's interesting there. There's still room to congregate on social media in positive ways, but I find in my case, so much of that has spun off into group chats rather than necessarily an actual social media space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like I'm in a little bit of a weird spot right now when it comes to social media because uh, the platform that I've used kind of overwhelmingly for the last um, number of years has been Facebook. And I feel like it took a long time to sort of get Facebook accessibility where it's at now. Um, but as people are migrating away from Facebook, uh, and it's just sort of like older folks like myself that are on there, you know, particularly <laughs> young people are, are migrating to other platforms. <laughs> yeah, like... Um, you know, Instagram and uh, TikTok and probably other ones that I'm not even aware of, um, <laughs> you know, that, that those platforms are less accessible from a blind, partially sighted perspective. So I find myself sort of on Facebook, but maybe with um, people migrating away from that and also, you know, losing the ability to share news links. Yes. I didn't quite realize mm -hmm. just how important that was for staying connected to what's happening locally in the community. But the same thing as Elizabeth, I sort of specifically find it helpful for staying connected in groups. Uh, like we have some disability groups here that are actual Facebook groups, not, you know, chats. And same thing with my uh, social work program. We have uh, have some some groups yeah, Laura. You so somewhat. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> somewhat I, I, relevant. I, I think somewhat or a little is pretty much the answer that a lot of people are going to uh, end up hitting here. Also, there's the irony of asking this question on social media. Obviously, you're going to be going to an audience that's using social media yeah. a little bit more. But you touched on that news side and the the blocking of Canadian news on Facebook. But in general, the algorithm has really squeezed news out for years now. Mm -hmm. There was a point yeah. in 2016, 17, 18, where it was actually a pretty awesome wealth, especially at a place like Facebook, of news stories and videos and a lot of interesting stuff that you could consume and take away and process. And it really has lost that. The algorithm has absolutely choked that out of the platform. And it's a little bit disheartening. And, and that's what makes it less and less relevant to me. If this is not a place where I'm getting posts from my friends, because that's one of the things the algorithm is squeezed out as well. Your friends are posting stuff. You're not seeing it. That's brutal. Like, that's awful. And then if you're not getting the information, the news, then what am I actually getting here? Right? Like, what am I actually getting? And the algorithm changes at Twitter slash X have also really squeezed out news. There's still a place for X. Marco Flalo and I will get to this in the second hour of the show, where it's still one of the only places you can react 
communally in real time to something that's developing for good and for bad. But really and truly, the relevance of these major platforms, the algorithms have choked out the relevance. And I wonder, in the long run, what you'll find as a user, as an experience moving forward. Thank you both for your thoughts on this one. At Accessible Thank Media you. on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. So that's the irony of voting on a poll about social media on social media. But if you're off the grid, ish, sort of off the grid. Feel free to send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can pick up the phone and give the show a ring ding ding. 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, physician Peter Atia has a new book that explores the idea of prolonging life. Do you want to live forever? Don Dickinson tells you all about it in the preview of McLean's magazine. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Pulling back the curtain just a smidge here and maybe offering some described video for folks at home who are uh, blind or low vision. My hair is a little crazy today. Uh, it's kind of sticking up in weird positions, and I spent part of the first segment, whenever we were throwing to a news clip, putting some water on it, trying to tamp it down. And uh, that didn't work. So during the break, Eliza Rocco literally had to run down the hall from the control room with hair gel and try to get my hair into a uh, semblance of sanity. Uh, work in progress over here, but big thanks to Eliza for at least uh, making me look a smidge more professional this morning. As of 2020, the average life expectancy for Canadians is about 81 years old. That's a pretty good run. But let's face it, if you could prolong your life you might try anything. That's Peter Attia's mentality. Peter is a longevity expert and best-selling author, and he's highlighted in an interview feature in McLean's Magazine. And Don Dickinson is the content curator for McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio and has thoughts on this article. Hey, good morning, Don. Hey there, Dave. <laughs> I think your hair looks wonderful. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm probably due for another cheap haircut, or maybe I should lay out the big bucks and get a proper haircut, and then maybe we wouldn't have these problems <laughs> in the mornings. So, Don, a little bit of a terminology here to, to sort of set a groundwork. Atia practices something called Medicine 3.0. What does he mean by that? Well, uh, you know, he, he, he's very well regarded. Uh, he's a Toronto native and he, um, you know, he's a physician and he's got a lot of background in health and he devised this system called 3.0 and it's a visionary, visionary approach to healthcare that manages disease before it starts. He says it uses a combination of exercise, nutrition, sleep, the occasional supplement and emotional wellness. It's also the thesis of Outlive his new wildly popular death-defying book. <laughs> uh, wow, eating right, sleeping good, exercising. Uh, I'll, I'll pass. I'll pass on all three of those, <laughs> on all three of those fronts. So you mentioned the book Outlive. Uh, it's about prolonging life. How much of his own work is f rooted in his own fear of mortality? 
Well, very much so. I mean, he started on this uh, uh, mission because of the fact that most of the men in his family died uh, in their 40s and 50s of cardiac disease, believe it or not. Um, He is quite the specimen. He keeps himself tremendously, you know, prime and healthy, and he exercises constantly. Uh, Even with Arnold, he mentions in the article that he was pumping iron the other day with good old Arnold. Arnold Schwarzenegger? uh, No way. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Man. Like, like he—he's really up there when it comes to the stars. He's, he's very much, um, you know, like uh, the health guy now, right now. And uh, as I say, he was a Toronto native, so you know, we got to be proud of this guy. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know if the control room can throw his uh, picture back on screen here, but he does look quite fit. I would say the jawline is the jawline of someone who lifts a lot of weights. Not a lot. Doesn't have a lot of the Dave Brown chin going on there. That is a square, <laughs> strong jawline that he's got there. Nice broad shoulders too. So maybe all that pumping iron is uh, paying some dividends. Uh, Don. He, you mentioned he's a Toronto, Toronto native, but doesn't live in Canada anymore. In fact, he said in interviews he would not live in Canada if his life depended on it. Here's where things might get a little controversial, but also interesting. How does he compare yeah. the U.S. and Canadian healthcare systems? Yeah, I, I thought this was very interesting. He says the U.S. and Canada each do uh, certain things exceptionally well uh, that the other one does horribly. I thought that was very well put. The U.S. Uh, maximizes for quality. Uh, that's the reason he says single um uh, that's the single reason he says that persons uh, that really need uh, special attention to their health, they go to the states for the best care. But uh, but um, he also says that Canada does things exceptionally well. Uh, in Canada, we optimize access. Nobody gets health care all that fast, but we do get generally good health care. We keep costs low and the care is really good. Now, mm-hmm. I have a tendency to disagree with this because I've had a couple of health issues recently. And I must say that I was treated with expediency and the best of care. Like, um, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. one of those things where, you know, obviously, uh, if you have a bad experience, it it, it, it colors your experience oh, right certainly certainly but, but generally speaking i think we have uh you know as he says great access and uh you know we're we're constantly being monitored and we and if you have a good doctor i think that's key. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, you know it, it, it's it's a really interesting point don it's it's not it's not an uncontroversial one but it's an interesting one because he's right and you're right access to healthcare matters at a fundamental level, there's something completely immoral about the United States healthcare system that it leaves so many people out, and things like having a baby or getting sick can potentially bankrupt you, right? Like, how can oh, yeah. you how can you have a society that does that? But there is a quality of care, and especially from the perspective of preventative medicine, that's where the United States, if you have money is a totally different world. Canada, yeah. in my experience, is really good at dealing with a crisis. For years and years, I was dealing with some tumors on my throat, but it wasn't to the point of a crisis, so the system kept shuffling me down until one morning I showed up with the, at the emergency room coughing up a bunch of blood, and then all of a sudden the system went into action to be like, oh, we need to do something about this guy with tumors in his throat. So I I, I do think that Canada has a, has a tendency to wait till something is dramatically wrong but then, yeah. the, but then the system will snap into action in a really effective way. But as I continue 
to borrow um, just observations from my own meandering life experience. My father might not be crazy about me airing his business here on the television, but he's dealing with serious arthritis in his hip significant arthritis in his hip. And the doctor in Canada says, well, when that gets really bad, we'll do the hip replacement for you. But my dad lives four or five months a year down in Arizona, and he is actively contemplating right now, how much am I willing to go out of pocket to get this yeah. taken care of now and not deal with three or four years of pain while I'm waiting for a hip replacement? So I, I, again, I'm acknowledging the immorality, but I'm also acknowledging the efficiency and the choices that people can make if they have the resources in the system. Yes, and that's exactly what it comes down to. It comes down to the bottom line of money. You know, if you've got it, you can get great health care in the States. If you don't, you're... You're not that yeah. lucky. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you were looking for an expression there that might be the acronym <laughs> SOL, but uh, we're not going to say that one on the air today. Uh, Don, let, let's jump a little bit more into this article because it's, it's a really interesting one. It's like super, super interesting. He talks about health trends, and there are certainly no shortages of health trends out there in the world. I think uh, the sort of Atkins high-protein, low-carb diet is one that continues to uh, live in infamy for years and years. Uh, Don, I don't know that I've messed around with a health fad per se, maybe not explicitly so. What about you? Have you ever messed around with a health trend? Well, no, not really. It, you know, like I'm a diabetic and uh, sometimes when you have that, um, you know, you have something like that, you, you can't really mess around yeah, because yeah. as a diabetic, you know, you have to do consistent things and you have to... You know, eat small meals and, and you have to eat them regularly and all the rest of it. And, you know, even when you have a medical procedure like I had a couple of weeks ago where it necessitates you kind of not eating for a little while, you know, the fasting, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. or a blood test that makes you fast for 12 hours, uh, it can be a problem when you're diabetic, you know, because there's certain things that you have to do. So, no, I, I, I don't mess around basically because my system wouldn't allow me to. Yeah, you, you know, you, you said the word fasting there. That actually is one of the big trends these days, the intermittent fasting, where yeah. basically you won't eat for 16 hours, and then you can basically eat as much as you want, <laughs> not quite inside eight hours, but you're sort of given free reign to, to be a wild person inside those eight hours. So yeah, yeah. I, I, a lot of these health trends, I do, I, I would say, probably boil down to a lot of diet or fitness, right? Like uh, the, the folks who do the cold plunges and the ice baths every day, that is not a life for me. I'm not, first thing in the morning, you think this guy's jumping into a bath full of ice? No chance. No, no. And I also have arrhythmia. So I mean, jumping oh, no. into a I mean, forget that, you know, like, why would you put yourself in jeopardy, you know? Uh, Don, one more question here. Uh, how do you personally feel about the idea of prolonging life? As I'm rapidly approaching 40 years old, I'm already tired all the time. I don't know if I want to go uh, up to 120 or 130 here. Uh, no, I think a large portion of that, the longevity factor, is health, right? I mean, if you are, um, I mean, I know people that are in their 60s that are decrepit, and I know people that are in their 80s and 90s that are not. So I think if you if you were healthy, I mean, really, you know, truly healthy, right? And 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 you don't have bad hips, and your knees can carry your weight. Well, then I think, yeah, you could you know, live into your late 90s. I personally am not one to believe that, uh, you know, longevity is a, is a great thing if if you're not healthy, right? Mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. I mean, why would you want to spend your last 10 years 
thick, you know? You know, you know, Don, that's that sort of boils back to this idea of the American healthcare system versus the Canadian health healthcare system, quality of life versus quantity of life. Just making it to 110 doesn't necessarily mean something if living to 110, if those last sort of 10 or 15 years aren't particularly uh, engaging. That said, Don, I met uh, an, an older woman in the elevator in the office building yesterday, you know, in her 80s or so, maybe about four foot 11, like little tiny, little tiny old lady. Dawn, you should have seen you should have seen her walking. She was walking faster to me. She held the door for me <laughs> on the way out of the building. I was like, heck, yeah, get it, girl. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, there you go. You know, ah, like, ah, uh, ah. like we we have really good longevity in our family. You know, and uh, my grandmother was perfectly healthy until eighty six, uh, and you know, uh, that's when she she passed. And you know, I, I mean, that would be that would be fine with me. Yeah, that's a good. It's a good run. Hey, Dawn, thank you for this. I know you had a second article, but let's uh, maybe hold that. Uh, let's hold that okay. for another for another yep. time. Thank you for this. Always appreciate hearing your insights. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you next week. Okay, Dave. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Don Dickinson, content curator at AMI-audio. McLean's Magazine airs weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-audio. Coming up next, there are a lot of origins around Halloween. Journalist Rebecca Dingwell explores some of the pagan traditions. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Halloween is just around the corner. Decorations are up in a lot of places. People are getting geared up for their costumes. I believe there's going to be costumes around AMI next week on Halloween. I will be dressing up as Dave Brown of Now with Dave Brown. The candy is also flowing. I'm way ahead of the game on the Halloween candy. I may have to buy another box because I've already eaten the first box. But before you celebrate Halloween, it's worth exploring its origin story. And journalist Rebecca Dingwell has been thinking about some of the pagan traditions around Halloween. Hey, good morning, Rebecca. Hi, Dave. So, Rebecca, a little context here. Why have you been looking at Halloween through the paganism lens? Yeah, so I guess I've been... Um... I guess intentionally practicing paganism for the last year. It's kind of something I've always been into by by proxy. I almost feel like I was born a pagan, but I just didn't know what it was. <laughs> um, so I've been kind of following the, the 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 wheel of the year and and some of the different celebrations around that. Um, sometimes in a, in a solitary way. Sometimes with um, a group of people. Sometimes online and. I've always been um, really into Halloween itself, so um, this particular time of year, which is uh, referred to in Gaelic as Samhain, is probably one of my favorite of, of those celebrations. So what's that intersection when you think about Samhain and the origins of Halloween? Where, does, where do they intersect? How do they end up relating to each other? Yeah, so when when you think about Samhain, I feel like it's 
almost when you think about the actual traditions, a lot of it is closer related to, I would say, um, just in terms of uh, the practices, I feel like it's almost closer to the Mexican Day of the Dead traditions. Okay. Because a lot of what um, we do as Halloween now is actually um, what the the Celts would have done around Christmas. So when you think about things like um, like the Mummers um, in Newfoundland, and also um, there are other similar uh, ancient Celtic traditions. So they almost kind of met. I feel like what they thought was they got rid of what they thought was quote unquote too pagan or, or unchristian and then kind of meshed it together. I feel like perhaps the, and this is just me speculating, but I feel like perhaps the Christians did not want some of those practices interfering with Christmas time. So kind of, kind of pushed them to a little bit earlier in the year. And then um, by extension, because Samhain is about the, the thinning of the veil and the returning of the dead. I think that's how it kind of got its, um, kind of creepy or, mm. or or darker kind of kind of atmosphere to it. So so go a little deeper into Samhain. What would a Samhain celebration manifest as these days? You said it might be something similar to the Mexican Day of the Dead, but but what does that actually look like in a in a practical tangible celebration if celebration is even the word? Yeah, for sure. I I would call it a celebration. I think that's a fair word for it. Um, for example, I, I attended uh, a Samhain, um, I guess, celebration last year, and it was on the Halifax Common, and there was a fire, and um, it was just, it was very simple. There was a small ritual. Um, if you wished, then you could bring a little token of somebody who had maybe died in, in someone from your life who had died in the last year. Put that on the altar. Um, we would write um, an intention for the coming year, and then we put it in the fire. Um, it was not very long. It was pretty simple, pretty straightforward. There are lots of other things that that you can do personally. I um, was looking into the idea of, of what they call a dumb supper, which is basically you're serving a dinner and it's a silent dinner, and you you have a place set um, for someone who has passed. I really like the idea of it. The thing I don't like about it is you're essentially, um, you know, giving them uh, a full meal. And then the idea, um, most sources say you should burn the food after. Um, and I'm like, well, that's a waste of a whole that's, meal. That's I'm, a waste I, of I, food. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm, I don't know. I know it's not like, you know, uh, to call it a waste maybe is not accurate for people who do practice that. But I feel like maybe I might do some version of that. But we'll just we'll just have a cup of tea or something like that. Maybe yeah. Not, maybe not a full meal. It, it, you know, speaking of maybe hybridizing or allowing yourself to sort of create and mix and match different tra uh, uh, traditions to sort of serve your own your own personal ethos on the matter. I, I wonder about how Samhain and Halloween may sort of double manifest in your life. Mm -hmm. I, I think about in my life around Christmas in Montreal, uh, where I grew up and having just like the majority of my friend group being people of the Jewish faith, we used to really do sort of that Chrismica thing. We'd sort of like put mm -hmm. these things together and create a hybrid that worked for us and it was a ton of fun. How might you end up hybridizing the, the Halloween and the Samhain in sort of, uh, in sort of a collective piece? 
Yeah. So I, um, I think I mentioned this last time I was on, but, um, last year was my first time actually giving out candy on Halloween in a long time because I, I actually live in a house now. Um, so I think one of the nice things about Samhain and, and pretty much all the pagan celebrations is food and the sharing of food features very heavily. So I feel like almost by its very nature, I feel like passing out food is, is like very much accurate mm-hmm. to a Samhain celebration. So I almost feel like it's just, it's just part of it. So for me, it's sort of, it's sort of a hybrid um, by its very nature, almost. Okay, let's uh, wrap up here. Uh, it's the last time I get to talk to you before Halloween. Let's do a little mm-hmm. candy talk. I've been keeping the candy talk under my under my hat for a couple days here. I've been controlling myself as I've been shoving coffee crisps in my mouth nonstop behind the scenes. Rebecca, what is the Halloween candy that maybe when you've put it in the bowl to start giving out to the kids, you've put it at the bottom of the bowl, so maybe there's some left over for you at the end of the night. What's that one item that maybe you're burying at the bottom of the bowl to save for yourself? Last year, it was definitely the Hershey's Cookies and Cream. Oh, yeah. um, I don't have any of those this year. I feel like the I feel like I I like them e- more equally the ones I have selection I have this year, but it was definitely the cookies and cream. The problem was when the kids looked in and they actually saw what bars were there, sometimes they'd, they'd make requests and I didn't oh, feel no. like I could deny them. So. <laughs> that would definitely not be in the spirit of the season. Uh, if, you, yeah. if you at all have a taste for the cookies and cream, not that they're a sponsor on the show, but they could be. Uh, McCain Deep and Delicious Cakes, they make a cookies and cream flavor that's excellent. Just saying, mm, noted, just, noted. Just, just saying I, don't, you know, I don't know how much processed cake you want to eat, but uh, but it's good. It's good in a pinch. Rebecca, thank you for this. Have a lovely Samhain and a lovely Halloween. Thank you. That's Rebecca Dingwell, a freelance journalist based in Nova Scotia. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moeller will talk about snow in the weather story of the day. And no, not the R&B singer, snow, snow, snow. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. North American stock markets fell yesterday with U.S. markets feeling the pinch from mixed earnings reports from big companies and rising bond yields. Toronto's TSX index lost 38 points to close at 18,947. New York's Dow Jones average fell 105 points and the Nasdaq dropped 318 points or 2.4 percent. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index tumbled 668 points or 2.1 percent. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.46 cents U.S. Canadian Pacific Kansas City is lowering its financial forecast due to economic challenges and losses stemming from the B.C. port workers strike. And the United Auto Workers Union in the state says it has reached a tentative contract agreement with Ford that could be a breakthrough to end the nearly six-week-old strikes against all of the Detroit Big Three automakers. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's go to the world of weather with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you are about to be an informer when it comes to snow in Manitoba. Oh, (laughs) yes. 
<laughs> Southern Manitoba is in the crosshairs of some very significant snowfall with the potential of up to 20 centimeters of snow. Get out those boots, folks. Manitoba's first snowy week of the season will likely be a significant one, delivering up to 20 centimeters of snowfall for some areas. There are odds of over 15 centimeters of snow in Winnipeg or Winnipeg, decreasing throughout, increasing throughout the day. While some flakes appeared in parts of Manitoba earlier this week, a lot more is expected. This early snowfall is a reminder that winter is just around the corner and residents are encouraged to prepare for winter driving conditions and falling temperatures or walking conditions. Starting last night, light snow was in full swing across the region, totaling about 5 to 10 centimeters of snow for the city of Winnipeg. That will just be a light appetizer for what falls. Snow totals will really vary across Winnipeg today. Neighborhoods towards the northwest are looking at five centimeters, while areas closer to the university could see nearly 10 centimeters of snowfall. The main course of snow includes a strong winter storm, which will bring a more significant swath of snowfall through Friday. Heavy snow isn't expected to push into downtown Winnipeg until late this evening. With this being the first winter driving or walking of the year, expect many slowdowns today and prepare for longer commute times. You know, there's something really special about the first snowfall of the year, the first big agree, snowfall of the year, but there's also something deeply frustrating about it. It's, 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 Have you it's, got your boots out, Dave? Are you ready if it I, comes this way? My boots are definitely in my closet, ready to be dusted are off. Are they made as, for walking? That's the question well, I want to know. Well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> they were not a very good pair of boots, and the soles have already worn down a little bit, so uh, we, we, there may need to be an upgrade this winter for these okay. uh, big galumpin feet. Get ready. But, upgrade yeah, yeah, but Toronto doesn't get actual winter, Elizabeth. The only time I wear my boots is when I go visit Ottawa because Toronto is not a real winter city. I'm going to leave it right there, though. Elizabeth, okay, talk, to, okay. talk to you a little bit later in the show. <laughs> Coming up next, a city that never gets snow, I'm being a little facetious, is Vancouver. And the Parade of Lost Souls is making its way to Vancouver this weekend. Community reporter Nathan Clements will tell you all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Halloween events are popping up all over the place. They include some family-friendly events as well, including a parade out in Vancouver. Community reporter Nathan Clement has more on the event. Hey, good morning, Nathan. Good morning, Dave. How are you today? Nathan, I'm great. I uh, was trying hard for a month to fight against the uh, flow of Halloween stories, but now I think it's okay to start exploring a couple days out. The Parade of Lost Souls and the Parade of Little Souls is going down this Saturday in Van City. So what's happening at this parade? What's great about the Parade of Lost Souls and the Parade of Little Souls is it takes place on Commercial Drive in downtown, uh, oh, yeah. outside of downtown outside of downtown Vancouver. So already, you know, the energy is going to be high. There's going to be a lot of celebration, a lot of energy on that road, on that street. So 
Starting at 6.30, we have the Parade of Little Souls, so mostly a family-friendly event where the kids can come out, the kids can walk down the street, scare everyone. And then after that is at 7.30 is the main Parade of Lost Souls, so everyone's coming out for that one. And they're using a multiverse theme for this one, but mostly a lot of different dresses, a lot of different costumes are welcome. Get creative, get crazy for it. Then after that, they do an after party at 10 p.m. just to celebrate the evening. It's hosted by a the Dusty Flowerpot Cabaret, a massive collective of actors. So there's going to be a lot of creativity, a lot of just life and energy on Commercial Drive. Oh, that sounds like a blast. October 28th, the Britannia Library in Vancouver is where it kicks off. Then a parade and a party that ends at a cabaret. Talking my language, dustyflowerpotcabaret.com, dustyflowerpotcabaret.com to learn more. Nathan, maybe Halloween is not everyone's thing. Well, Lumiere is showcasing an illuminated art installation within the city. Each year, large art works of art are displayed outdoors for locals. What are some of the featured art installations this year? The one I'm looking forward to most, and shocking as a cyclist, is the bicycle. So there's going to be one of a bike as well as there is a underwater display, which uh, makes you feel like you're going deep under a pool. So that's going to be pretty unique and pretty um, different as well. There's a couple more, one featuring a dragon. And there's going to be some that I've seen in previous years. And as the augmented reality becomes more and more popular, they're using the cell phones. So there's going to be a couple of like hidden displays as you get down to the site. You may want to pull out your phone and see. So I'm definitely going to be curious to check out those ones just because you never know what to expect. What is some advice you have for people to maximize their experience in the planning phase? One of the great things is it's over from the 2nd to the 6th of November. So you have time. You don't need to hit every single one every single night. So definitely make sure you're hitting up like little areas that you can. So they're taking place in the West End, Cold Harbor, the Financial District. There's plenty of displays at the Bentall Center, for example, as well as Gastown and uh, Yale Town. So make sure you're not rushing yourself in there. But what's great about all these locations where all these light displays are going to be is it's close to restaurants, it's close to other places. So you can have a dinner go check out some displays or go, go check out displays and have a dinner. You can really take that time to spread out your evening or spread out the next couple days. So the uh, website to learn more here is LumiereYVR.com and Lumiere is spelled L-U-M-I-E-R-E, L-U-M-I-E-R-E, LumiereYVR.com. Nathan, one more event to talk about here, the Infinite an immersive experience. There's a chance for Vancouverites to enjoy the cosmos in an immersive exploration of space. So what exactly is this experience all about? What the infinite is, it's a augmented reality display for an hour long where you can just go around the International Space Station, check out space oh, and really sick. learn what it, what it learns to be an astronaut have a meal with astronauts and just completely tour around and experience the immersive lifestyle and the highs, but also the struggles of what it means to be up there thousands and thousands of kilometers away from earth. Oh, that is 
so that's so cool. I almost cursed there by mistake. That's how cool I think it is. <laughs> what are some of the accessibility needs needs uh, need to knows before somebody heads out to this one? Uh, the big thing is it's going to be in a, in a dark room, a lot of the displays. So just making sure that you're going to be safe and you have people there that you can get around with, as well as it's on the Rocky Mountaineer, which is an older train. So just making sure that accessibility will be easier to access and um, making sure that there's going to be ways that you're able to get up and see the displays. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's, it's on the train? It's on the actual Rocky Mountaineer? I believe, yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Oh, that's sick. If I had an infinite amount of money, speaking of infinite, that Rocky Mountaineer trip from uh, Vancouver to Banff is something I want to do so badly. I've done the Via train to uh, Jasper, which was super cool through the Rockies, but I hear the Rocky Mountaineer is like a totally different experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've never done the Rocky Mountaineer. I've seen it so many times on different highways all across uh, all across the province. It's one of those most beautiful things that we're so lucky living in a province like BC, just having that kind of scenery and oh, something man. like the Rocky Mountaineer is so special and so beautiful. Oh, oh now I've now, now you've got me craving a trip to Vancouver, Nathan. I I still haven't made my vacation plans for my birthday week. Maybe I've got to get out there to uh, to do some Rocky Mountaineer and the Infinite Experience. Nathan, uh, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too. Have a great one. Thank you. By the way, if you want to learn more about The Infinite Experience, you can visit their website, theinfiniteexperience.world, infiniteexperience.world, November the 15th to January the 14th at the Rocky Mountaineer. Oh, man, that does line up with my vacation time. Oh, maybe Papa Bear's going to Vancouver for his 40th birthday. Seems like a great place to have my midlife crisis. Nathan Clement is a community reporter in Vancouver, British Columbia. In one minute, Laura Bain will have the entertainment report. But first, there's some more options for your smart home technology. Mike Dubusky tells you about them in Tech Trends. Jennifer Pattinson Tui covers smart home tech for The Verge. She says Matter is a technology designed to make all the smart home systems play nice together, from Apple Home to Samsung SmartThings to Amazon Alexa. Make our connected gadgets be able to communicate with each other locally in our home so that we can control them with whatever voice assistant or smart home app we would like to. This week, the Connectivity Standards Alliance, which makes Matter, added compatibility for a whole bunch of new connected devices, including robot vacuum cleaners, smoke detectors, and washing machines, no dryers, unfortunately. Tui says it should make the smart home easier to use, but it's still an early step towards Matter's adoption. It's an exciting one, but unfortunately, it doesn't mean that by Christmas, we're all going to be using our smart refrigerators to tell us when our washing machine's done. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, <laughs> ABC News. Oh, I like that line on the out there. Thank you very much, Mike. Switching to the world of entertainment, Laura, I've been fighting against the flow of Halloween stories, but you're already bringing me Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving and Christmas stories. Well, you know, it, it's it's time day for those Thanksgiving stories. Yeah, so a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special. It's turning 50 this November, um, of course, coinciding with American Thanksgiving. And in honor of the anniversary, a new version of the soundtrack has just been released. Oh. So the soundtrack, it can be streamed on platforms such as Apple Music and Spotify. It's been remixed and remastered, and it features multiple previously never-before-released songs by beloved 
composer Vince Guaraldi. So people will find that exciting. I just gave it a listen. It also has quite a few studio nuggets on there, kind of for the super fans, like chit chat between oh, cool. uh, Guaraldi and yeah, and maybe even a few like a few swear words. Ooh. Um, I think you can still play it around the kids, though. Uh, it's pretty subtle. There was a few times where I like had to rewind to be like, "Did I just? Did I just hear what I thought I heard there?" But it's it's kind of buried. But I think uh, I think like I say, super fans will be really into that. So, uh, you know, to be honest, I'm really familiar with a Charlie Brown Christmas, mm-hmm. and of course the Charlie Brown Christmas tree from that special. But I, I I'm sure I watched it as a kid, but just not as familiar with the Thanksgiving Day special. You know, it, it's it's funny, Laura. When you when you first brought this to my attention yesterday, I was like, "Oh yeah, the Thanksgiving special. That's the Christmas special." No, it's <laughs> it's, it's not. Um, I I was also say I'm less familiar with it too. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's still not beautiful. I, I just love the composition that is done around these specials. It, it, there was something that was so beautiful and organic and original about it that it just felt so special. Whether it was the Thanksgiving or the Christmas. I got a question for you, though. You know, if we're going to wander down this pathway a couple months early, what is sure. your favorite holiday TV special or movie? Or is it just all the Hallmark holiday movies? Because I know that season has already begun. Uh, yeah, I love all the Hallmark movies. It's true. I'm kind of like, I want to lie there, but I'm not going to. Any cheesy kind of holiday rom-com like gets me in the feels. But uh, for me, it's not Christmas without watching the 1951 Scrooge movie with Alistair Sims. I'm not sure oh, if you're familiar with that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the story's been told so many times. But yeah, the, 50, the 1951 version is awesome. Yeah, we always watched that every Christmas with my grandparents. So, you know, it was, uh, there were parts of it that were a little scary for me as a kid, like the ghost of of Christmas future or whatever. But uh, yeah, I sort of feel like I have to give that a watch every year to make it Christmas. What about for you? I'll I'll stay in the animated world. Uh, I don't know if you remember Garfield, like the Garfield cartoon, the cat who loved lasagna and napping, which Mm -hmm. is sort of Mm -hmm. speaking to my adult life as well. They do an amazing Christmas special with Garfield. I, I probably have haven't seen it in 10 or 15 years but i i used to just love that one every time it would play around christmas i i there's just something so like loving and familial about it um that just so relatable i i loved the garfield christmas special and i do find myself almost every year watching it's a wonderful life on christmas eve or christmas day uh just you know it's a nice it's a nice sort of getaway with the with the family you know I'm a fan of that one, and I cry every time at the end. It's it's unavoidable. <laughs> uh, Laura, one last question here on the way out, and it's about food. I'm doing the same thing I did yeah. to Rebecca Dingwell with you on the way out here. What are you going to snack on, or like like in terms of a holiday snack, a holiday movie, a holiday TV show? What's sort of the holiday snack that gets you in the holiday mood? Yeah, so that's it for me. I think it has to be holiday themed. Uh, My snack of choice for watching holiday movies would probably be like uh, Christmas cookies. Yeah. Uh, Like some iced shortbreads and maybe some some clementines to go along (laughs) with them and just sort of break up some of that sugar. Nice cup of cocoa. Uh, What about for you? You said the magic word, uh, shortbread cookies. I love shortbread cookies. My Aunt Dorothy used to make the best, best, best shortbread cookies. My Aunt Mary made good ones too, but my Aunt Dorothy were just killer, killer, killer. Um, I am not a baker, so I buy my shortbread cookies now. But uh, yeah, good, good, good times there. And uh, definitely a nice cup of cocoa, a little hot chocolate. That works too. Hey, Laura, thanks for uh, putting me in the holiday mood. Maybe a little bit early, but I still appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, Dave. You know, I also think about American Thanksgiving in the context of being a great day of football.
triple header, baby. I uh, am unsurprisingly taking the Friday after American Thanksgiving off. I'll give you one hint on what I'm doing that Thursday afternoon. <laughs> hey, I want to remind you that speaking of the end of November, around American Thanksgiving, in fact, just after American Thanksgiving, AMI has a really cool opportunity for you to be part of a live studio audience. Kelly and Ramya are taping a special episode on Monday, November the 27th. They're looking for 50 people, 5-0, to be part of the audience. So if you live in the Toronto area or you're going to be in the Toronto area on November the 27th and you want to participate, you should send an email right now, literally right now. Pull up your Gmail, pull up your Hotmail, pull up your Outlook, whatever you use, and send an email to info at ami.ca. Come on, that's super easy to remember. Info at ami.ca. I'm telling you to do it right now because space is limited. If you want one of these spots, you gotta jump on it. And here's why you've really gotta jump on it. If you attend, you receive a Kelly and Rumia gift bag. Everybody gets that. And everybody also is going to get their names entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. Come on, you get to watch Kelly and Ramya, and you can win a gift card valued $500. Think of all the songs that could buy you on iTunes. There's also an opportunity to win one of five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards. Couple double doubles. For your chance to win those great prizes, you have to be part of the live studio audience on November the 27th. So remember, you've got to send an email got to take action info at ami.ca info at ami.ca coming up after the break it's the regional news update this is now with dave brown on ami tv It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, October the 26th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Twitter, or X, is testing out subscription plans in a couple of countries. So it begs this question, what's the prospect of the platform becoming a profitable business? Marco Flalo and I will contemplate this question, and I will once again say that I call the thing Twitter. And I'll once again say, until Elon Musk is willing to acknowledge other people changing their pronouns, I reserve my right to acknowledge him changing his business's pronoun. And the movie Beetlejuice is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Michael McNeely reviews the Tim Burton classic and will once again consider the question, is it a classic film? That and so much more coming your way in the second hour of the show, but things begin with the regional news updates. In British Columbia, Metro Vancouver's regional transit system says it's facing a $4.7 billion funding shortfall over the next decade. Without help, it could be forced to cut service by as much as 60%. 
A financial update was presented in a report to the TransLink Mayor's Council yesterday. The report says $2.8 billion of the shortfall is related to lower fare and fuel tax revenues, and it says $1.8 billion relates to higher expenses. So $4.7 billion shortfall over the course of the next decade, possibly a huge service impact to public transit users in the Metro Vancouver area. Over to the prairies, the Saskatchewan government delivered its throne speech yesterday and introduced a few affordability policies. The province will rebate some of the provincial sales tax on the construction of new homes. Saskatchewan will also introduce a program that would cover would help people cover the costs of building rental suites in their primary residence. Premier Scott Moe says his government wanted to take a measured approach. We need to be prudent uh, with the dollars because fiscal accountability and, and, and balancing the books here in the province of Saskatchewan is most certainly uh, a priority uh, for this government as well. NDP leader Carla Beck was not impressed by the policies. I honestly thought that the Premier might take the opportunity to adjust sales, to address some of those issues, but again, we see more um, self-congratulations, uh, platitudes and pointing back to Brad Wall's record. I understand why he might not want to point to his own record, but frankly, um, the, the government needed to show some contrition. And finally, in Quebec, French universities in Quebec are voicing concerns about the province's plan to raise tuition for out-of-province students. Emily Javesky has more. In an open letter published in La Presse today, the universities denounce, quote, any measure that would put the very existence of a university at risk. They also criticize what they describe as characterizations of non-Quebec students as cash cows and threats to the French language by proponents of the tuition hike. Tuition for new students from other provinces would increase from about 9,000 to around 17,000 starting next fall under the Quebec government plan. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. And just a reminder, if you want some reflection on that story out of Quebec, last Friday's news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta dove a bit deeper into that one. So scroll back in the podcast to last Friday, first hour of the show, you'll find that conversation. And don't forget to like, subscribe and review, share it with friends and say, hey, that Dave Brown is a smart cookie or that Dave Brown is awful at what he does, but you should listen anyway. You should hate listen to Now with Dave Brown. A click is a click, irregardless. Irregardless, not a word, by the way, so I apologize to the Anglophiles out there. Let's move to the world of sports and chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, you'll hear me say this over and over again for the next couple of weeks. It's still really early in the NHL season and the National Hockey League, but time moves on, and by the end of the weekend, every team will have played about 10% of their schedule. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, the games count, and they don't take the points away or add them to your total. They're in the books. They're in the history books, so it's never too early for a vibe check, an NHL vibe check. The teams that are giving off good vibes and the teams that are giving off bad vibes. Let me give you a for example, Brock. The Detroit Red Wings, who've been in hockey purgatory for the better part of a decade, 
are 5-1-1 one, and one to start the season. But it's not just that they've won five of their seven games, Brock. Is that they're number one in the league in goals scored. They make this huge offseason acquisition of winger Alex Debrinkat. He's got nine goals in seven games. The guy's on pace to score 80 goals, Brock. It's gonna be amazing. I mean, we know he's not gonna score 80 goals, but the vibes are good if you're Detroit. You've made a lot of moves, it's coming together, it's congealing. That's a good vibe to start the season. Yes, it is. Uh Detroit was on my list as well. I I really also like uh, the way that they're playing. I believe that David Blatch is still the head coach there, who was the guy who took over for the infamous uh, Mike Babcock, who did a lot of good things uh, in Detroit. And so the vibes are just really, really good. I like to bring out as well. I think that his, the way he's just taken to Detroit is pretty cool and pretty good. And I love the way, and all of these teams, I'm going to give you the pretty much the exact same vibe. I love the way that he's allowing his players to just play. They're just running up and down the, the ice and they're putting in a lot of goals and playing okay defensively, but they're really putting in a lot of high, high powered offense, which is really good led by Brock to out. As we said, Brock, the uh, head coach of the Detroit Red Wings is going to be mad at you that you're giving Mike Blatch all the credit. It's Derek Lalonde. Derek Lalonde is the head coach of the Detroit Red Wings. Okay, so they've moved on from, uh, I for some reason, I thought it was still uh, Flash. But <laughs> well, anyway. He, well, Derek, Lalo- give... Derek Lalonde is going to be sending you some hate mail after this segment. That's fine. Uh, I will give Derek Lalonde his credit <laughs> then as well. <laughs> okay, who's, 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 who's giving you good vibes, Brock? Uh, okay, uh, the Boston Bruins, The all of these teams that I'm going to give you good vibes are currently undefeated and playing really well, the Boston Bruins, Colorado Avalanche, and the Vegas Golden Knights. And I have to tell you, Dave, the Vegas Golden Knights were, I was really hard on them coming into the NHL and making it to the Stanley Cup final their first season. And it was just like, oh, this isn't how a team's supposed to be built. It's not how, but you know what? They have sustained, sustained, sustained. And I love watching the Vegas Golden Knights. Though Those teams are my good vibe checks, but the really good vibe checks now are the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah. They finally got me to buy into this. Okay, they've gotten past the uh the you know the the new franchise smell and they're kind of building it and so I'm on board now. They are pummeling teams, the Vegas Golden Knights. They have the best goal differential in the league. They are just pummeling teams, just like they did en route to the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, the vibes are very good in Las Vegas. No Stanley Cup hangover for the Vegas Golden Knights. Top-tier stuff. Brock, bad vibes. I think you and I are both going to land on the Edmonton Oilers, so just before I open up the curtain for you on that, I will say the Pittsburgh Penguins are also in a bad vibe check here. You and I, on the opening day of the season, discussed how they've pushed all their chips into the middle of the table for short-term gain they want to make this aging roster compete and goodness gracious is that an aging roster and they are struggling to start the season and that is not good news you know they might still make the playoffs brock but that is not looking like a stanley cup contender right now the vibes in pittsburgh not good but let's be super clear the bad vibes are in alberta in the city of edmonton yeah, they are, and especially with the injury to Connor McDavid, Oof. that really makes the bad vibes even worse. Um, and that's what pushed me to put Edmonton on the list. Uh, Pittsburgh was on my kind of list at first, and then I'm like, nope, 
tips the scales because Edmonton's a Canadian team and Connor McDavid is injured. When you have an injury like that to your star player and you're already having bad vibes, this is a real problem. And your goaltending is a problem. Oof. You're not scoring enough. It's it's just there's all kinds of smelly hot garbage in uh, Edmonton right now. And Oof, it's man. not a good situation. The goaltending is really rough. Even a couple days ago, they take a 3-2 lead into the third period and give up five goals and uh, lose 7-4. to four. That was bad news, man. Things are not great in the oil patch. Brock, let's end on a more of a happy note, although uh, based on the lack of sleep you've been getting, maybe it's not the happiest note in the world. Brock, you got a puppy. I did. Her name is Tia, she is a uh, Golden Australian Shepherd mix. Uh, I got her totally on a whim on Monday. Literally after the segment when we got off the air, Catherine Batcher, my attendant, who some of you have heard about, she comes in with pictures of puppies and she says, you want to go see some? And I said, sure. And I oh, knew that I was Dangerous would be game. Dangerous coming, game, Brock. Coming out with a puppy. And I sure did. Uh, I'll tell you, Dave, as a person with a disability, there are some challenges that come with owning a puppy. First of all, uh, my wife works uh, regularly, as most people do. And so I'm reliant a lot on attendant assistance. And as an example, this morning, uh, she jumped off the bed and couldn't figure out how to get back on again. Oh. So the, the yowl that was occurring from Miss Tia this morning uh, from uh, 7.30 onwards was pretty brutal, but it, alas, we uh, we made it through. And it's also just the challenge of being a wheelchair user and a person with a visual impairment. So making sure that I'm parked in one spot once I've done all my things that I need to do for the day and just managing and making sure that I don't you know, run her over or nip her, but good vibes coming from the <laughs> Richardson household with a new puppy. Oh my gosh, so cute. We've been throwing some pictures up on screen and some video up on screen of you playing with the doggo and the doggo sleeping next to you, next to your wheelchair. Oh my gosh, top tier, Brock. I love puppies, but uh, like you said, Catherine was bringing you to go look at puppies. This is why I don't go to pet stores because I would literally come home with 77 pets. Yeah, well, we went to a totally Amish uh, farm and it was really kind of good vibes there and she had a bunch of puppies. Catherine took uh, Tia's sister whose oh. name is uh, Willow so we have some uh, bloodline in the family which is kind of cool and uh, yeah so we've we've adopted Tia has Grandma Catherine, Grandma Deb there's a whole bunch of grandmas and grandpas oh. in, in her world so it's very cool Love it. Hey Brock congratulations puppies are awesome. Have a great day Thank you very much. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk and now the AMI Puppy Desk. Coming up after the break, Twitter, or as Elon Musk likes to call it, X, is testing out subscription plans in a couple of different countries. So what's the prospect of Twitter ever becoming a profitable enterprise? Mark Aflalo and I will contemplate that question. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Twitter has confirmed that they intend to charge new users $1 per year to post tweets. Essentially, it's a subscription plan. 
The platform has already begun to beta test this new idea in New Zealand and the Philippines. Mark Aflalo has some thoughts on Twitter slash X's new initiative. And Mark, of course, is the co-host of Access Tech Live, which you can find on AMI-tv in about an hour and 40 minutes. Say good morning, Mark. Good morning, Dave. How are we doing? Mark, I'm doing well. I think just as a jumping off point here, broadly speaking, what do you think of this idea of charging new users a dollar per year for the privilege of posting on the platform? You know, I... It, we're going to get into the meat of this and, and the reason that I think exists for this being, which is, you know, to combat a lot of the spam and, and the bots and the fake accounts that have been on, on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it this week. Um, I, I think the idea of adding a subscription price to anything, whether it's a quarter, a dollar, $20 after people have been used to not paying for something is definitely not the best idea in the world. Yeah. And right now this company is suffering a really big uphill battle when it comes to public relations. There's a lot of issues ever since Elon Musk bought the platform that were just brought to light that didn't even need to come to you know light of day and people finding out a lot of things about how it was run, et cetera, et cetera. I think that if Elon had never made a bid or made it, you know, even pretended to want to buy the company, we'd be in a very different situation right now. Yeah. And we wouldn't even know about half the half the crap that was going on in that company. I, so so adding a charge to anything, you know, I understand increasing a price on something, okay, it makes sense sometimes, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But adding something to something that wasn't that was free in the first place seems it seems kind of sketchy to me. Again, really important to clarify, the part of this beta testing plan is a dollar per year for new users, not existing users. But, but but obviously, you know, in time, they can do whatever they want policy-wise. And this is sort of like putting out these trial balloons. Oh, let's see what people will pay. They, they did it with the notion of paying for your blue checkmark uh, last year, which I guess was met with uh, mixed-ish results. So it speaks kind of over and over again to both the, ba- both the battle to try and weed out spam and and bots off the platform, but also to like make some money. You know, Elon Elon uh, bought this company at sort of uh, the precipice of the cliff of recession that we've been slowly wandering down. Elon yeah. wants to make this thing profitable, and his thing and his big idea since day one is we got to get the bots off here. And I'm not sure he's got a great prospect on either of those fronts. No, I mean it's hard because the bots and the hacker communities and the the programmers and developers out there are really good at what they do. So they're able to make accounts and these bots and these services that allow you to buy Twitter followers um, seem really real. So the you know the idea of adding a, a cost to add new users is interesting because it's kind of like those those captcha little you know security things to make sure that you're a human being when you're filling out your email address and password, <laughs> except it's taking it a, to a whole new level where put your money where your mouth is, even though it's a dollar, right? It's giving out that credit card information. It's going into your wallet. Only a human can go do that. You know, only a human can go put their money where their mouth is and say, okay, yeah, so it's a dollar. You know, I think anybody really is going to say whatever, it's a dollar if they really want to join the platform. That being said, if you're spawning up accounts in the hundreds or the thousands because someone just bought Twitter followers and you need to actually fulfill on those those promises, uh-huh. then it's going to add a little bit of a barrier and help stop those new bots from at least getting onto the platform. Combating the existing ones, good luck with that. But at least this does show 
and I think will show when we see the data, if we do see the data, that it does do a pretty good job at stopping those automated signups. Any kind of barrier to entry is going, you're right, going to stop that. But a barrier to entry is a barrier to entry is a barrier to entry. And uh, I'm quickly realizing that I'm becoming an old man. Like it's happening really fast. Like I, it's happening faster than I can imagine how fast it is. But I'm, I'm mature enough to know that if you want your social media platform to become popular, it starts with the young people. Facebook started with college students. Instagram started with high school and college students. TikTok started with high school students. Even to a certain degree, Twitter started with young people, tech heads and young people. I just think about barrier to entry. Maybe $1 doesn't seem as daunting for you or me, but a young person might not have that credit card. They got to come knock on mom or dad's door to be like, hey, I need the credit card to open a Twitter account. And mom and dad might not be super cool with that. Yeah, no, you know, you make a real good point. Is that it, you know, uh, us old geezers over here, um, us old we, guys, uh, we're we become creatures of habit, right, Dave? So, to to sign up for a new platform, we're going to be like, why why are we even doing this anymore? Like, we almost realize, okay, I'm not going to waste half my life that I've already wasted on these social media platforms. So, am I going to really pony up to continue that, or can I just maybe just write it off? Um, but you know, if I look at that younger generation, because I have kids, thankfully I can do that. Otherwise we'd be useless here. Um, <laughs> Twitter, you know, X or Twitter, it's not even, it's not even on their radar. It's completely off their radar entirely. Yeah. All they care about is TikTok. All they care about is maybe sometimes Snapchat just as a means of communication. They're not even texting. They're really, those are the two platforms that are on Facebook, Meta, Maybe they need an account because they've just got a quest and they need to sign up for it and they force you to have a meta account to get onto that, but they're not signing up for Facebook for any other reason, you know? So really there's a real big uphill battle going on right now over at X. And I don't really think that they're necessarily going to get over that hump in terms of profitability. I, I don't know. This is, I mean, they've never done a really good job at securing the ad revenue like Google and Microsoft and yeah. and Facebook did in the first place. So to try and not only keep subscribers, get new ones, build that database of, of analytics for, for advertising and make money. I don't know. This might yeah. be a loss on that line in Elon Musk's uh, <laughs> statement. Uh, Mark, this question is probably bigger than your pay grade or my pay grade, but I think it's a valuable, interesting question to at least explore a little bit because there has obviously been this huge pivot from the business community towards social media in the last 15 years. That's where the people are. Let's go spend a lot of time and effort building up our social media presence. But Mark, I'm starting to wonder if there's actually value in the social media space for a business or an organization in, term, in terms of like an actual uh, uh, cost-benefit analysis, the amount of time you might have to put in developing strategy and making content and doing the posts and actually engaging with the people who engage with yeah. you in a meaningful way, it takes a lot of time. And I'm not sure that social media broadly still provides that perceived value that it did maybe even a decade ago. I think it's a, it's a numbers game at the end of the day. If you think about a time before social media, people were spending their money on creating ads for newspapers, creating ads for magazines, creating ads for TV or radio, right? 
lots of money spent on creating the ad creative there, probably more so for one campaign than the cost it would cost you today to hire one person to create that content on an ongoing fair, basis. Fair. Then, you know, think about the fact that when you're spending your advertising money, if it's on social media, if it's on online ads, it's way more targeted. So you're not just throwing $100,000 at a TV ad and hoping that people come and click and buy your stuff. You're throwing maybe less money or or more targeted money at a specific demographic because you can now do that and you can instantly measure whether or not you're getting results on that because it's all digital now. Mm, so you can know that, mm. okay, I spent $1,000 on targeting men who are 18 to 24 years old. Well, you can see who's buying, who's clicking and what are they doing? So um, the dollar is going, I think, longer. You're able to stretch less money a lot farther because you can really target the people that you want to target. And I think that's where social media and, and online advertising definitely has a, an advantage over anything that you can't measure. Ooh. The second you can measure results, you're, you're definitely spending money in the right places. Mark, you did something there that I love because you changed sort of the scope of the question that I was asking because I asked the question so openly that I almost asked it badly, but that's a great answer to that question. I was just thinking about people who are companies, organizations who are just making a multitude of posts on social media. I didn't yeah. even factor in the idea of sort of promoting that post or the advertising side of that post. That's a good job by you right there, flipping the scope on me. Well done by you i'm just trying to answer the questions to give you the perspective here that's what i do <laughs> <laughs> turns out that wasn't above your pay grade you nailed it so that means you get nice. to promote your television show that comes up in about Thanks. an hour and 31 minutes <laughs> what's coming up later today on access tech live we are so um, excited to welcome Dave Dame, the head of product accessibility over at Microsoft. He's a gentleman who I've been following his career for a very long time. He uh, shares his journey with cerebral palsy all the time online, a marathon runner, scuba diver, um, an incredible person um, who really, really feels that at the end of the day, we need to change the landscape of the tools we use to make sure the disabilities are really not a factor in anything that anybody does. So we're really excited to have him on. I wish we had like four hours to talk to mm. him, but we're gonna cram him into that one hour today. Wow, yeah, Microsoft does a lot of really interesting, innovative work in the space and uh, definitely a really cool opportunity to have that conversation with uh, you and Steven Scott. Mark, thank you for this, have a great show. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Dave. That's Mark Flalo. Mark is in Montreal and getting ready to co-host Access Tech Live, which you can find at noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio on the weekend. This weekend, Judah Gupta will chat with Max Bro about a number of recent initiatives designed to promote employment among people with disabilities. That's The Pulse weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. And of course, you can find that show on demand on all major podcast platforms, including... YouTube. Coming up next, the movie Beetlejuice is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Michael McNeely will review the Tim Burton classic. But first, here is the Parasport update with Greg Westlake. Hello, welcome back to the Parasport update. I'm Greg Westlake. Under the bright lights of the French capital, Canada's wheelchair rugby team took to Paris for the 2023 International Wheelchair Rugby Cup. The action kicked off against the reigning world champions, Australia. In a tightly contested match, Canada won 49-48. The victory began a series of back-to-back -back wins, defeating Denmark and Britain. Topping the group, Canada drew France in the semi-finals. 
In a nail-biter, Canada edged their opponents 51-50, setting up a gold medal showdown against Australia. In the final, Canada would fall 53-48, seizing the silver. The Canadians now turn their attention to Santiago and the Parapan Am Games, as that will be an opportunity to book their ticket to the Paralympics next summer. Jetting across the English Channel, we arrive in Scotland at the 2023 Stirling Wheelchair Curling International. With two teams entered, Canada had double the chance to bring home the hardware. In the blue pool, Canada 1 finished round robin in second, while Canada 2 won the red pool. In the playoffs, the two Canadian squads would face off in the semi-finals, with Canada 2 claiming victory 7-4. In the bronze final, Canada 1 beat USA 2 by a score of 9-3, while in the gold final, Canada 2 lost 5-4 to USA 1. That's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. back it's now with dave brown on ami tv over to the world of movies there's going to be a sequel to the film beetlejuice warner brothers studios made that announcement earlier this year the film is expected to come out next year it got entertainment critic michael mcneely thinking about he has never seen the 1988 classic so today, he's opening up the vault to do another classic film review. Michael is in studio with me at the mighty headquarters of AMI Television in Studio 7, alongside his intervener, Jill. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Michael, I'm great. I saw Beetlejuice when I was a kid. Like, I was maybe 9 or 10 years old when I saw Beetlejuice. I remember liking it, but you've watched this through the eyes of an adult. So now that you've seen it, how do you feel about all the love out there for this movie? I am very confused. Um, first of all, I feel like I've lived in a uh, alternate reality where every single person has watched this movie. It's not me. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And it turns out the movie came out in March 1988, and my parents were a little bit busy because I was born on September 1988. Okay. <laughs> so I was coming on the way. Um, and that's probably why we didn't stay up to touch on the modern films of that era. Mm. Um, because I, I do remember I was a little bit late watching Princess Bride as well, but I love Princess Bride. I just don't have as much love for this one, I'm sorry. Well, it, it really speaks to how movies can slip through the cracks, right? So, for example, I was born in 1983, I didn't watch Back to the Future till like 2001 or 2002. It just it just never came across my radar back when I was a kid. And those were the uh, days when you had to go to the video store to get a VHS to watch something. So it was super easy for a film to slip through the cracks like that, which then begs a bigger question about the distinction between a cult classic and a true classic. Where do you think Beetlejuice sort of fits in that distinction? Well, first of all, Beetlejuice is an important film because without it, I believe Tim Burton wouldn't have made Batman or the two Batman movies that came after. And without those two Batman movies, Christopher Nolan wouldn't have done Batman. And mm. then before you knew it, we would be back in the future in a different timeline <laughs> where there was no Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it's hard to believe that everything would have been pinpointed on this particular film, but it is. 
and also Beetlejuice is also um, important in terms of creating what we call the Burton Cinematic Universe, which is, you know, all the other films that he did in this world, like Frank and Weenie, Corpse Bride, maybe Nightmare Before Christmas, all those came from this world and this design. So I do appreciate it on those fronts. Um, there's also another another important part is that um, Beetlejuice is a film that really didn't seem to target a specific demographic. For example, lots of children watched this film growing up. I have no idea how they got that, but it became known as a children's movie. But when I watched it, I was like, what the heck? <laughs> there's like 50% of the chunks are for adults at the, at the very least. There's chunks about suicide. There's chunks about swing parties. There's chunks about exorcisms and my favorite film is referenced Night of the Living Dead, but you can't tell me that a seven-year-old would know all those things. <laughs> so it's maybe one of those children's films that played to the adults in the audience as well, which is not necessarily uncommon, but a lot of the stuff you're talking about is very mature-themed. And it's interesting you bring that up because you mentioned Tim Burton, a director who is known for at least putting himself into sort of the macabre style of cinema, that there's a certain darkness to it. But with that comes those mature themes that you mentioned. And I remember when I saw Batman Returns, his second Batman movie when I was a kid, I left that movie in tears because it was like not a movie for children. It was a superhero movie that was really, really dark. How would you describe Tim Burton's style and maybe how some of those stylistic choices made their way into Beetlejuice in 1998? Uh, 1988. Well, what's interesting is the cinematographer, um, I can't, um, Ackerman, Thomas Ackerman, he said that he needed to create a distinctive style to meet Burton's needs. And one of the things that Burton asked for was not to do that shimmery thing where you have ghosts, you have the light flutter and right, right. stained glass window type thing. And he just said, I want something more realistic, I want something more grounded, was a surprise to hear from Burton. But it actually ends up helping us, the people with low vision or no vision, because we have something distinctive that we can look at instead of a shimmery essence. So that's maybe why we don't have those stereotypical ghosts in Burton movies. And that's an interesting idea, just to use colors like black and use some um, images that are more physically present than shimmery. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and I thought that goes towards the dark style that you're talking about, because everything is, you know, everything is emo. Before we know now why it was associated with being emo and before she became a mom <laughs> and stranger things. But what's really interesting is most of these actors stayed with us for a long time. They're still here with us today. Like you've got uh, Michael Keaton, he was just in the film about a hitman who has mm -hmm. amnesia. And you've got We Know No Why, or you've got um, Gina Davis, you've got Alec Baldwin. All those people are still with us. And. Um, the man that isn't with us is Glenn. I can't remember his last name, um, but he passed away. And one of the interesting things about him, he played Ortho, and he his funeral, um, they play at the day old day old son because he loved it so much. 
Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, you mentioned Michael Keaton, who's an actor who's still churning out really interesting work. Uh, the founder, a couple of years ago, the story of the franchising of McDonald's yes. was just phenomenal. And Michael Keaton was incredible in that role. But Tim Burton, if you think about his influence, how do you think Tim Burton has influenced cinema and television, not just then, in that moment, in the late 80s and early 90s, how do you think Tim Burton's influence still resonates today? Well, just think about any ghost story that touched the perspective of the ghosts. I think that's something that Tim Burton has given us. I think most of the time we would have been afraid of the ghosts, but now we get to understand their perspective and why they may want to hunt people and think about TV shows. Um, like Death Like Me and Ghosts, where you have the bureaucracy as well. You have the bureaucracy of being a ghost, the bureaucracy of being dead. You've got to do paperwork. And there's an interesting joke in Beetlejuice that I'm sort of coming to terms with, and it says, you know, if you uh, committed suicide, then you become a civil servant in the afterlife. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so I, that's part of the reason I'm here today. With What I'm saying is, there's probably about 25 jokes about suicide. And I don't know how they're going to do that with next year, because this is a different world than yeah. it was before yeah. 1988. And uh, Beetlejuice is a little bit of a sexual harasser as well. So I'm curious how they're going to do that as well, because I'm just, I just can't wrap my mind around it in some regards. Yeah, 30, 35, 35 years is a long time ago, and it's a, it's a, diff it's a different world that we live in. Like, that's, that's for sure. I'm actually uh, going to be doing something with AMI-audio today. I'm going to be popping on the AMI-audio book review to talk about a book from 1978 that when I read in 2004, I was like, oh, you know, that's a little rough around the edges, but it, it seems fine. And now I reread it for this, for this uh, AMI-audio book show this week, and I'm like, oh, man. This has aged really, really badly. Like, really, really, really badly. Uh, Michael, you mentioned the sequel, that next year they want another one to come out here. How do you feel about them making a sequel three decades later? I'm pretty clear about how I feel about remakes and sequels and reboots. I'm a little bit tired of it. I, I allow filmmakers or artists to do it if they have a great idea. But how are you feeling about them coming back with another Beetlejuice three decades later? I agree with you, Wade. I've always agreed with you about sequels and remakes and reboots and whatever else and what I call them. Um, I just, you know, I like Michael Keaton's face. I like, I like to see his face without any of this thin. With, okay, I think the Beetlejuice thin is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, 35 years, there's going to be so many advances in CGI. I just don't even want to go there. I don't even. Want to see what they're doing? He'll probably have a boil on his face. Oh, he'll, oh. he'll pop, and you know, it's just you know, oh. what, just give me, just give me Michael Keating as Michael Keating. I'm fine with whatever he wants to do, but don't make him put on just whatever this is. So, um, like you know, when they when the ghosts turn their faces inside out, I was just like, can I throw up now? Oh, Do I have man. to keep watching this? And that's 35 years ago now, so I want to know that they're going to gross me out even more. And he oh. likes to eat bugs, Beetlejuice. Yeah. 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 So we're going to see more of that too, I'm sure. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go watch it. <laughs> yeah. Just based on some of your speculation there, I'm not going to go watch it. Michael, you are a lawyer by trade. 
and in law they always say, uh, never ask the question if you don't know the answer. I get the impression I know the answer to this question. Would you watch Beetlejuice 1988 again? Would I watch it again? I think I'm, I'm okay. I think I did the wide one so I can get off. Um, I think there are some great things, don't get me one. I think Barbara and Adam as the ghost couple are amazing. But I'm, I'm curious how they're going to explain how Adam, Alec Baldwin aged and whether or not he'll be allowed to be in a movie again, mm. given his shooting um, problem that we talked about last year. But uh, I like the story there of the ghosts and the ghosts being the parents of Lydia, who mm. didn't want to kill herself, played by Winona Ryder. That was an amazing family then. But I think what happened was I got sidetracked with all the gimmicks, with all the Beetlejuice stuff, with all the gross-up. And we forget that there's a family at its essence. So I'm just worried that with the 35 years later, we're going to be focusing on the one thing. Yeah. And so I think I'm okay knowing that this family was there to take care of Lydia and, you know, perhaps worked on her mental health because they didn't seem to cover that at all. That, you know, if, if a teenager is talking about killing themselves, help them. Yeah, um, yeah. I, actually, Michael, I, I would actually ask you to just maybe, we, we didn't put a content warning or a trigger warning on this, so maybe, like, you've made that point, let's move on and stop talking about it. Because, uh, yeah, that, I think we've sort of touched sensitive uh, material here, and you've, you've hit your point. Your point is taken, your point is made. Let's stop saying those words, uh, because we didn't put a content or trigger warning on this. Michael, i got to say goodbye to you, actually. We are out of time. But what your last thought, go ahead. Last thought. Well, I think that's it's important to know about those content warnings, and I think it's important that um, that we were less sensitive to these concerns in 1988 than we are now, and mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with being more sensitive to these concerns. I agree, hundred percent. And I think I think we just had different childhoods back in 1988, and we got away with things more back in 1988 than we would now, and. I think so it's important to pay homage to those times, but also to realize that we've changed. And so I think if they want to do a Beetlejuice 2, they shouldn't call it a Beetlejuice. They shouldn't call it Beetlejuice. I can't even say the word Beetlejuice 2. They shouldn't even call it that. They should just call it Beetlejuice to start again. Right. To maybe readdress some of those concerns and mm -hmm. fix, fix those things. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Michael, thank you for this. No problem. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely with a classic film review of Beetlejuice. You can stream Beetlejuice on Crave. It's rated PG. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael D. McNeely. And McNeely is spelt M-C-N-E-E-L-Y. Coming up after the break, Apple is raising the price for some of its services. Elizabeth Moeller will bring the question to the round table. Exactly what are you willing to pay for streaming services? This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Access Tech Live coming your way in about an hour and nine minutes. And then at 2 p.m. Eastern time, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves. And Ramya Emuthin has a good idea of what's coming up on the show today because she's the co-host of the show. Hello, Ramya.
Hello, Dave. Yeah, I got a pretty good idea. So we're flipping. <laughs> We'd be stunned if you didn't. <laughs> I know, right? You tell me what's coming up. Um, so we have we have what in the world with Grant Hardy, and obviously this is where we flip through quirky stories from around the globe. There's some seriously strange things that happen uh, that don't necessarily make our main news. So we're looking forward to those convos or stories. And Mary Mamaliti is joining us. Ten surprising kitchen items that you can toss into your um, dishwasher. So dishwasher Ooh. safe things that you may not have thought of. Okay. I know you're always coming up with useful stuff. And we have uh, Mike Fair joining us again to talk about the audio entertainment that he has picked out for us. I don't have it um, here right now. Oh, Graphic Audio's newest drama, Cult the Spider Queen. See, I was going to I, I was gonna say don't say it. That way people have to tune in at 2 p.m. Eastern oh, time to okay. catch that with but Mike. But if it's graphic that, audio, you got to tune in. That's exactly. you got to tune in 2 p.m. Eastern time. Ramya, just like you got to stay right there. There's about five minutes left on the clock here. But Elizabeth Moeller has an interesting topic from the world of Apple for you, myself, and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. Elizabeth, what's going on out there? All right. Well, subscription fees are increasing up, up and up for Apple TV and Apple One and Arcade and the like. So I want to know from our roundtable, what makes you willing to pay for a subscription service? Let's do some rapid fire. A, access to sports content. I think we might have a sports fan amongst us <laughs> or two. <laughs> B, access to shows that you like to stream or series. C, content that is audio described, or D, other. Rami, I am tossing the ball to you. I hope you can remember all those options. Yep, obvious answer is content that is audio described. Second option for me is the ease of being able to go in and out of subscription services. So Ooh. I'm the, yeah. uh, yo, the new season of this is out and I love this show. So I'm willing to pay for that month of service and then I got to get out. So, uh, you know, tell me what you will about Apple charging too much to go through um, like the Apple ecosystem to get in and out of uh, services and subscriptions, but I don't care because it's easy. Uh, sign up for the one month and then sign back off. Oh, All right, good strategy. Yeah, and is, Ramya is like right on the pin there with that strategy. Rotate and be mindful. Rotate and be mindful because this stuff yep. adds up super quick. I know Alex Smythe, for example, would also argue access to sports content, kind of like how I'd make that argument because we both use a service called DAZN, which gives you basically full-blown access to NFL football on the mm. weekends, which is phenomenal but it ain't cheap. And sometimes you have to be really mindful of saying September to February, September to February, and then pull the plug on that one pretty quick. So Nazreen, for me, access to nice, clean streams of sports is a super valuable thing. What do you value when it comes to your hard-earned dollars and streaming services? I mean, TV and movies, but I never thought of that, Ramya. That's a really good idea. Um, my problem is that there are some streaming services that offer certain TV shows and others that don't offer it and others offer a certain movie and others mm -hmm, that don't offer mm -hmm. it. So you have, at the end of the day, a couple of streaming services that you're paying for. And yes, they keep increasing. I'm not surprised there. I'm not shocked. Um, that's the whole point of this. So, uh, <laughs> there's a new show that I'm watching on Amazon prime and I'm paying for Amazon prime. And now, um, no, I, sorry, I wasn't paying for it. And now there's the, the show got 
like blocked from me because I have to pay for the subscription at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so wait, 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 Nizreen, you, you went really fast there. It's like a lot of stuff on Amazon Prime now is behind a second paywall. So it's yeah, not just that you're paying yeah. for the Prime service. You have to then pay for a second service on top of Amazon Channels. Prime. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the double movie. the double paywall. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot that I'm if I'm paying for it or not. Now that you say that, I'm like, okay, maybe I am paying for it and I have to pay for more to watch the show. Yeah. No. Is yeah. it really worth it? You know, Elizabeth, I think that's what's at the core of this question here, right? Like, it doesn't really matter that Apple TV Plus is going from $6.99 to $9.99. The bigger point is, is that the streaming world has gotten out of hand with the number yeah. of double paywalls or, or multiple services you actually need to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to, to Nazreen's point, I was recently on Amazon Prime, which I have a subscription for, and I wanted to watch a movie. And then I almost didn't see it because it's like, oh, you know, $3.99 or whatever it was to watch the movie. And the way my TV was set up, that wasn't accessible. And then all of a sudden I got this thing said, are you sure you want to pay? And I was like, whoa, 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 no, I don't want to pay. Yeah, it's absolutely a problem. And I think you know, in my ideal world, which I know is not possible, to have one, you know, streaming service for everything, which isn't going to happen. But yeah, it's getting out of hand and you really have to prioritize and think about like what's important to me. So for me, also Canadian content is really important. So I do subscribe to, to Gem. Mm -hmm. um, and as well, thinking about not just the audio description, but how much labor do I have to put into using this? If this yes. is really difficult to navigate, I don't really care if it's a great show, if I have to spend 20 minutes just getting into the darn thing and figuring out where to click to watch the show. Usability really, really matters in these apps. If you don't like the interface, oh boy, it's going to be a rough ride. The content's better be real good. Or if it's tough to cast stuff or it's tough to move from platform to platform, there's a lot of considerations that go beyond just, hey, is this content great? The usability argument is there too. And Romeo was obviously right to describe the, or, or mentioned the described video side of this as well. That For sure. If you're going to have great content, it better be audio described as well. But I like where Elizabeth's at. One subscription service to rule mm. them all. Maybe would, Dave Brown's consulting can uh, work on uh, that. Say. Our lawyers <laughs> our lawyers can't afford uh, those kinds of rights. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for this. Nazreen, have a great You're day. Welcome. Ramya, have a great day as well. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry. Things are kicking off tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern time. The news panel gets together with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.